There you go. How about Texas versus Uranus? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 160 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder that I am putting on an online conference for Ruby developers. If you want to come, we're having a bunch of awesome speakers, and it's going to be here in a couple of weeks, so you need to go sign up. Uh, You can find it at rubyremoteconf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Philip Morgan. Hi, folks. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Love to. My name's Philip Morgan. For a number of years now, I've been helping development shops get more leads. I do that using things like positioning, content marketing, and marketing automation. I wrote a book also. <laughs> I wrote a book on positioning. It's called The Positioning Manual for Technical Firms. Awesome. So how do you think about positioning? Because I hear things like brand and personal brand, and maybe you don't need a brand, you just need word of mouth. and What you do, what you don't do, I don't know. Well, I think about positioning in a pretty concrete terminology. You can certainly think about it in the more abstract ways that it's been defined in various marketing books and so forth. But I, I really like to simplify it down to how you talk about what you do and who you serve and how you might approach that audience and that problem from a unique or different perspective. So I just simplify it down to that, that very simple description. It, you know, it can get a lot more nuanced than that and a lot more complicated than that. But as soon as you open the door to that, that extra complexity, it becomes super intimidating and super discouraging to try to think about using it as a tool to make your life and business better. So how do, so, how, how do you start building that position? How do you start thinking about how you communicate what you do? Well, it's a two-sided equation. Part of it is based in you know, as a freelancer or maybe someone who owns a small agency, that's primarily who I'm speaking to. So, you know, if someone from General Electric is listening in and wanting advice on how to position a new product line, they should probably go elsewhere for that <laughs> advice. 
So I think about it from the perspective of, of your audience, the freelancer, the small uh, web agency or dev shop. So as I said, it's a two-sided equation. Part of it is what you're good at and what you have the ability to do well uh, or even uh, do at a mediocre level. Uh, I don't want people to think that if they're just starting out, that positioning is, a, is something they can't use uh, because I think you can use it even when you're starting out. So that's one side of the equation. And the other side of the equation is what your clients actually need. And that part of the equation, both sides of the equation need to be very much based in reality, what you're really good at, what you're really interested in doing, and what your clients really actually need. So it's really, it's a process of discovering both of those things and looking for an overlap. And when you find that overlap, you start to, all of a sudden your life changes and I can go into more depth about what happens, but I can promise you certain things get better fast when you find that overlap. That's sort of how I think about it. And, and that's the very beginning part of this process. And, and I really like to remind people that positioning is a process. It's not a thing where you're going to go away to some personal retreat and then two days later you've got it. It is a process. It takes time and effort to identify a positioning that's really going to work for you. And, and it's not, I mean, I mean, I read your book and really enjoyed it quite a bit and slowly but surely putting it into practice. But I mean, I think part of the importance also is it's not enough, you know, the positioning is not just, I like doing X, thus I will focus on X, right? It's much more complex than that. It's thinking about what you want to do, but also how that intersects with potential clients, your ideal clients, and finding a happy medium between what you're interested in doing and what your clients are interested in doing, and then pitching yourself that way. Right. I think, honestly, the best place to start is exploring what your clients need, because it's very easy for most of us who are coming from some sort of, you know, I got started in freelancing, maybe I kind of fell into it accidentally. The place most of us go from that starting point is to become a generalist, because it's easiest, it requires the least amount of business skill and marketing savvy, and it also seems like the safest place to go. So from that position of being a generalist, it's, I think, harder to, you know, do an inventory of your own skills and interests and then pick something that you think is going to improve your positioning. It's harder to do that than it is to simply just start talking to your clients and finding out what you can do for them that they will pay good money for. And that is, uh, you know, has some urgency or some importance to them. And so it's for that reason that I think it's better to really kind of dive into what your clients need. Because at the end of the day, positioning is just like value. And when it comes to the pricing discussion, you cannot impose value on anybody else. You can't make them believe that something's worth more than they believe it's worth. And positioning is the same way. You can't make your clients need a uh, full-stack developer if what they need is a specialist in database performance, two handy examples. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of something that I, I constantly mention to people I'm coaching on this. And by the way, Philip's book is the very first thing I make everyone read. Uh, because it does a, a great job of this and positioning is the foundation of everything that we work on. But there's that sort of fear that people get, the fear TM, that people get about 
you know, oh, I don't want to pigeonhole myself as this thing because then I'll get bored or maybe I'll feel like an imposter because I'm actually not like the world's leading expert on this particular specialty or, you know, there's a bunch of things that I'm sure Philip can bring up. But the thing that I drill into them is that this is a marketing exercise. It's not a, necessarily a skill building exercise. It's not necessarily how you're going to spend your day all the time. This is the foundation of all of your marketing. It's going to make it really easy to attract people that need exactly what you're selling, but you're also going to attract other people and you're going to have happy customers that give word of mouth to adjacent industries and that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily, I don't think it needs to be as scary as, oh, forever I'm going to be the Rails developer for small dental firms or whatever. Yeah, you bring out some important points there, Jonathan, because it's not forever. A, a positioning is something that you can use as long as it suits your larger st- strategic purposes. So, you know, those strategic purposes might be I want to work less and make the same amount of money or I want to make more money or I want to set myself up over the next five years so that after that period of time I can do this other thing. And positioning is a tool that can accomplish all of those larger objectives. You know, it's not like changing careers when you change your focus and sometimes very little about the day-to-day operation of your business actually changes with the exception of marketing becomes a lot easier and typically you get a little happier with the, maybe a lot happier with the mix of clients that you're getting. And again, we can dive into why all of that happens. Uh, and this may sound like a lot of empty promises right now to folks who are <laughs> listening or, or skeptical about this because they've tried it and it was hard or, or they've just never heard of it. But, you know, it's not like reinventing yourself or it can be a very subtle transformation in just how you talk about yourself differently. I can give you like personal testimonial here. I mean, I've been doing consulting for about 20 years now. And when people ask me what I did, it would be like, well, I do consulting and I do development and I do training and I do some writing. And, you know, basically by the end of my description, they'd fallen asleep. And I decided partly based on various people's advice and partly based on your book, I said, you know what? I'm doing all this training. Why don't I just like, and I love it. I love it. And I seem to be good at it. I seem to get more and more work through it. Why don't I just focus on that? And since I decided a few months ago to really focus just on training, it's really like magic. It's like magic. Like I feel like a whole world has opened up. I feel less stressed. I feel like I know exactly what I'm working on. I can describe to people in a really punchy sentence what I do. They know if it's right for them or not. And the number of calls I've gotten has just gone up rather than down as word has gotten around that this is the only thing I do. I never would have expected that. Can I ask a couple questions to sort of elucidate some of the details about what that's actually like to go through that experience? Sure, sure, please. Okay, so I'm curious, do you get to do any development anymore is the first question. I'll tell you quite honestly less than I would like. However, like I'm trying to sort of set myself up in terms of goals. I would like a year from now to be, say, teaching two weeks out of the month. One thing that, just to give you another example, is something that I I ran into yesterday. I was talking to one of my neighbors, and as Reuven said, you know, I do the programming and the this and that and the other. And and I kind of had that same conversation, you know. He's like, so what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a web developer, and I'm also a podcaster. And I'm not really sure if I want to deliberately focus one way or the other. Is there a strong reason for me to 
pick one and introduce myself as a programmer or as a podcaster? There could be. It really depends on, uh, I mean, any consultant is going to say, well, it depends. <laughs> so here, here's what it depends on. The first thing to think about would be whether you want one of those two. I mean, you can think about them as even as separate businesses, although that I'm sure they feed into each other. Mm-hmm. Do you want one or the other of them to grow more so than the other? And that would be one reason why you would start to position yourself as just a developer or just a podcaster. The other thing to think about would be, do people see those two things being in competition in any way? I would be a little uh, surprised, I think, if they did, because uh, for most people, podcasting is something they kind of do on the side. I know it's more Uh serious than that for you, but that's another thing to think about is in the mind of your you know, say your ideal client or your prospect, is it confusing at all to them to hear those two things side by side? Or does it seem complementary to them? And that's a question that's best asked by just talking to people and asking for their feedback. And not just, you know, not just people at the grocery store down the street, but people who could potentially be your clients. So that's where I would start with trying to come up with an answer to that question. The third thing I would ask is, is this harming your ability to get new business or to actually operate any of those those two businesses? And if it's not, then it may not be necessary or maybe now's not the right time. I think that, you know, that's the disclaimer I always give people. Uh, Positioning is is a fantastic tool. It's extremely powerful and it really is step one in running a serious business. But now's not always the right time to do it. And there are some people who manage to make things work really well without it. And I'm the last person who's going to say you should upset a status quo that you're really happy with. Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of experience in that transition from working with a bunch of people where they've got this sort of generalist practice that they've got going. And they, for whatever reason, the light bulbs come on for them and they realize that Maybe it's that there's this artificial limit on their income because they're billing by the hour or they're losing more and more work to Odesk and other Mm -hmm. sort of offshore types of places. So they know something's wrong. They're not, it's not as easy to get gigs as it was five years ago, even two years ago, but they have to, they're like, how do I transition without, you know, crashing the plane, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. So it is tricky And it's scary, especially if the people are like, you know, have a family and have a mortgage. So one of the techniques that has been pretty successful that I've seen is to to create a product or a productized service and you apply the positioning to that thing. Right. Sort of leave your business the way it is and like don't touch anything and then either have a new domain or a subdomain or like another page, a particular page on your site that maybe you don't even link to on the site, but you can promote somewhere that is highly positioned for a particular target market, solves a very specific problem for that target market. And then you're not betting the farm on like a a mass, a global overhaul of your entire marketing presence. Right. To Chuck's point, it's tricky in situations where you can only expose one identity at a time. So you're at a barbecue. What do you say when somebody asks you what you do? Or if you're giving a talk from stage in person, like the in-person stuff's a little tricky. 
Uh, so it's tough if the uh, the service that you're doing is off topic from your general business. So it's probably best if you're going to do that, take that approach to have like a a service that makes sense within what you're doing. Uh, and then you can tightly position that particular service. So if, as an example, like my base business is mobile strategy consultant. And I do all kinds of things around that. And it's actually a little too general in my opinion. But I've got this specific service underneath it called Mobile Retrofit that's extremely specific. It's specifically for e-commerce stores that make $10 million or more per year. It's got very specific deliverables uh, or I should say outcomes. And you can pick like three different levels of what you want to do to, you know, get this sales lift that it promises. Mm -hmm. And that's been really nice, actually. And a lot of my coaching students feel like that's a safer approach. And in fact, Kurt Elster, who we've had on the show before, did a very similar thing for his uh, Shopify-based website rescues. I think that brings out a really interesting point in that there's almost no situation where you're not better off starting small with some small experiment that you can easily control and therefore get good information from. Or, like you said, setting up a subsidiary service that has its own identity but is positioned in the way that you are wanting to try out and see how that performs. Because if you can sell one service that way, I'm also friends with Kurt, that just kind of ate his whole business, (laughs) that one subsidiary service. It became his new positioning. And I think it completely eliminated the fear and trepidation that anyone in his shoes would have felt about just making that kind of change without that, that supporting data of strong sales and, and good feedback from clients. Kurt's so, situation is really interesting because he has a partner. And I'm sure people listening are in this, a similar situation because, you know, the light bulb went on for Kurt, but not so much for the partner. So Mm -hmm. it was like, how do we get some preliminary data to prove that this is a good idea or, you know, validate that this is a good idea? And he like 8X'd his revenue. Yeah. So it was, it obviously ended up being a good idea. And like you said, it it took over their entire business and now they're, they're just going gangbusters. You know, my sort of personal story with positioning is also, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's a little different for me. Marketing never worked (laughs) until I, figured out a positioning that I could use to uh, be kind of the hinge that all my marketing efforts would swing on. So, and until I had that, you know, I was, I was making valiant efforts to try to do content marketing and to get clients coming to me rather than doing the kind of things I hated doing, which is like going to networking events and hoping for the best and, you know, sending out kind of desperate email blasts when works got thin None of that stuff worked at all until I was, um, until I had a, a very, a pretty specific positioning and I was starting to talk about myself as if I was a specialist. Don't tell anybody, but I wasn't back then, <laughs> but I started using that language <laughs> of, I do this one thing and I can get results for you if you have this one kind of problem. And within six months, it went from, you know, ineffective marketing to stuff like you really feel it. I don't know if, if you all have had the same experience of like doing some marketing and it actually works, but it's like a palpable feeling of, you know, you start seeing email show up in your inbox. Um, Randomly. And, right. And it's just like, whoa, something's different. So it really does kind of feel like magic, like Riven was saying. 
So we've talked quite a bit about focusing or niching down or whatever you want to call it. The trick is, is that, so I pick a niche, but then we're talking about positioning. So how, you know, how do I communicate what I actually do? Or are they the same thing, you know, niching down and, and doing that communication stuff? Niching down is not the same as positioning. Uh, you could position yourself as a, as a generalist. So I want to approach this from an analogy, which is a super simplistic analogy. Walmart, which may not, I don't know, is Walmart everywhere? Jonathan, you would know. <laughs> Are they everywhere in the world or is that more of a U.S. based company? I've never seen one outside of the U.S. They must okay. be China. A, they're probably all over North America. Oh, yeah, they in are China. in China. Yeah, okay. that's true. Well, apologies to listeners who've not heard of Walmart. It's, you know, substitute whatever store in your locality is a huge chain and sells everything from groceries and fruit to oil for your car to decor for your house. I'm sure there's some word for that type of store, but I'm just not thinking of it. It's a big box store that sells a broad range of stuff. So Walmart is a store that has positioned themselves. And that's a great, uh, to me, a great illustration of the fact that when you position yourself, you may not be positioning yourself as a specialist. So you can go to a store like Walmart and get pretty much anything. And in that way, they're a lot like the generalist you know, web developer who says, WordPress, Joomla, e-commerce, made from scratch websites, I can do all that stuff for you. And I'll do a little SEO and uh, I can even do branding for you. And when someone makes that claim about what they can do, they are positioning themselves as a generalist and they're saying, you know, I can solve a wide variety of problems. What your mind does in response to that is not that different than when you see a Walmart. Because what you perceive about the contents of that giant store are that they're low price and low quality. There's an alternative to that, and that alternative is a specialist shop. And it's, you know, for clothing, it would be like the boutique store where the prices are going to be higher, the perceived quality is going to be higher. And, you know, you can, in every line of products, you could, you know, find the specialist luggage store that only sells, you know, high-end luggage and the, the specialist cosmetic store that only sells high-end cosmetics. So you can also position your... Analogy. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know if it would work or not, but... You can position yourself as a Walmart or as a, you know, boutique supplier of high-end whatever, and both are positioning. So, Chuck, to answer your question, positioning does not imply or doesn't mean that you have to niche down. But when you start to position yourself as a specialist, a couple things happen. People have an easier time remembering what it is exactly you do. You stop becoming, you know, a web guy or a geek or a programmer and you start becoming the solution to a, you know, a specific type of problem. And for some reason, that becomes a lot more memorable. The second thing is that your marketing tends to become dramatically more effective because all of a sudden you've made a claim that you can solve some problem that for the right type of client is a really compelling problem that they'll spend you know, significant money to get a solution for. And when you start marketing around that very tight focus, it just becomes so much easier. You know, if you're into content marketing, you know what kind of blog articles to write or what kind of screencasts to record. Or even if you're doing a niche podcast to support your marketing, you know what the topic of the podcast should be. If you're doing outbound marketing, you know who to go after because you know or hopefully you know who has that problem. 
So that was a little bit of a rambling response, but those are some of the things to think about when you think about niching versus positioning and, and maybe combining the two, which I think is the most powerful way to do it. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to kind of clarify a little bit because we were talking about both and I wasn't sure yeah. what the line was. But I'd, re- I'd be really curious to hear Reuven's experience then with positioning himself and what you would recommend if, say, somebody else decided they wanted to position themselves as a trainer guy for Python or whatever. Which no one else should do, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible idea, right? <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, like, it, it, it had... Oh, that'd be great. So I had some questions. You, you said you've been recently been through this process of beginning to position yourself and you, and you're actually pretty well into it. So I was curious, do you get to program anymore? If you do, has that changed? If not, do you miss? What's that been like? So yeah, so I'm doing much less development than I used to. It's true. And I do miss that. And I am a little frustrated by that. At the same time, I'm sort of dealing with that in two different ways. Number one, as part of my training curricula, I'm sort of exploring things that I've always sort of just wanted to have fun trying out. So I'm actually sort of satisfying at least my intellectual curiosity to some degree even more because questions that my students ask are questions that I have that I can just sort of go off and research and then write about on my blog, which only helps myself and helps my training. But the other sort of development, actual large sort of media development projects, I'm hoping within the next year to get to the point where I'll be working on a number of products, either that have to do with training or just sort of SaaS products. But those are things that I'm going to drive as opposed to having my clients drive. Uh-huh. which quite frankly makes makes me happier because it means they won't be calling me up in the middle of the night, you know, why is this not working or why is that not working? It'll all be for, for me. So I'll still get to develop, but I'll be the one deciding what and how and in what way. Oh, that's interesting. Have you gotten any pushback from clients who are confused by the change or, you know, any any other kind of pushback? No, but it's been sort of this gradual thing. Over the last few years, I've been doing more and more training until I finally realized a few months ago, you know, I should just like accept the reality that I'm doing a lot of training and I'm enjoying it and people keep asking me to do it. And I should just position myself this way and then not have people call me up to do development work and say, I don't have any time for you. I have one big client. I have someone who works for me who does day-to-day development. And uh, I told my big client who's based in the U.S. for whom I do development, uh, I said, listen, guys, you're going to see my website change. You're going to see my positioning change. I'm also going to have something that says I work with certain specific clients, and you are one of those. You are the primary one of those. So I sort of had to massage them in advance just in case they would get worried. But I don't think they're worried. And what's the biggest personal fear you faced as a part of making this transition? I think to some – I mean, I, I knew that there would be enough work because there's actually a lot of training work out there, it would seem, at least in the technologies that I'm training in. I think to some degree I was worried that I wouldn't get to do enough development. And I'm still a little nervous about that. But again, I'm, I'm trying to sort of look forward six months, a year from now, so that I will be able to do the development. Sort of, I'll have the upside, but I won't have the downside of it. Mm-hmm. I've got a question about, Philip, you said that talking to prospective customers is the best way to ferret out their the, the problems that are keeping them up at night. Yeah. And hopefully that there's an overlap with uh, those problems that they have and your skill set so that you can create maybe a product or a service for them that would alleviate those pains. Right. But how do you find the target market? Like you need to pick people to talk to. How do you find them? Well, I guess there's two parts to that question, um, at least the way I'm understanding it. One is uh, how do you 
scope or how do you identify maybe the type of industry vertical or the type of job position you're going after? And then the second part would be how do you physically get in front of those people or or virtually get in front of them so that you can actually ask them a question? Yes, exactly. Is it one or both of those I should? The first one is actually the one I was thinking of, which is like I, I was sort of lucky that when things came along, the stuff that I do, I just knew I loved it. I knew I wanted to do it. I knew yeah. exactly, you know, but there are tons of people out there who are just like, I don't know, I'm just a full stack web developer. I can do anything. So I don't really care who my target market is. Like when you're talking to people like that, how do you help them through the process of picking one so that they can niche down on something if it seems like that's the right thing for them to do? Yeah, I get that too, where from the outside, it looks to me like someone has just a wonderful diversity of things that they enjoy doing. And it almost feels unfair to ask them to (laughs) turn down the volume on any of those because they just, they enjoy it all. And I really understand that. I'll be completely honest. I try to scare people in that position a little bit. I try to get them to think about the future, like how, what's the future in that because I think that helps people, at least people who think like me, uh, get a little more real about these things. Like, hmm, can I really turn that into a career that is going to sustain me? And, you know, can I supply a retirement fund doing this thing the same way? And can I support my parents in their old age or or just whatever it is? So I, I start with kind of a reality check. Is that really a sustainable way to proceed? And that's kind of, that's not really mean. I'm just, I'm trying to help people see the bigger picture, which is that every, you know, doctors, they choose. Okay. There is a general practice doctor, but the big money is in specialization. And so they're willing to do that. They're willing to specialize on, you know, one part of the body or one type of procedure or what have you. So it's not foreign to do that. I think it's just something that affects freelancers a little bit more than other professions because it's such a, I mean, this is not a negative or pejorative thing at all. It's just such a made up job. You know, you just kind of <laughs> figure out what you want to do and find some clients and you're in business, baby. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I do is I try to get folks to catalog their successes. What has worked really well, not just from a, an objective perspective of where did you make the most money or where was the client the most happy, but also from a personal perspective. And I, I guess the other thing I get people to do is I say, write this stuff down because when it's on paper, you can at least distance yourself just a tiny bit from it. And it stops becoming such a question of who you are as a person. And, you know, it's, it gets a little more objective. And from there, honestly, it is just a process of elimination. Not that it's that easy. But it's not as easy as just writing a line through stuff that you've written down on paper. But procedurally, it's it's really, it's that. And then the last thing I'll say on that question, Jonathan, is that um, some people will resist this to the the last breath. And yeah, I've, I've had people cry going through right. this exercise because it's so tied to their identity. Exactly. Just so just so scared. And that's why I, I guess I, I like to, get people to imagine themselves 10, 20, 30 years down the road. From the starting point of being a generalist, how do you get to the point where you have what you want out of your career? Usually, at some point, being a jack-of-all-trades and getting to dabble in five or ten different technologies throughout the course of a week stops becoming as satisfying as it used to be. And what becomes more satisfying 
is knowing that you can, you know, provide for your family. And I really hope people don't read into this that I'm criticizing freelancing at all. I'm essentially a freelancer myself. Um, and I hope that they don't feel like I'm being over harsh on the, on being a generalist. Everybody starts there, but I really do think it's a part of a natural progression to, you know, pick a few things and become really good at those things so that you can charge a premium rate. So, yeah, I mean, I'm to, I, I totally drunk the Kool-Aid on this a uh, long time ago, but it's, I was really nodding my head uh, at your approach to kind of having people look long-term because I find that it's the younger folks I work with who have the worst time imagining specializing. They're just like, I just love JavaScript. I just want to write JavaScript all day long. And I'm like, okay, but it's going to be really hard to find people that want you to do that if you can't explain to them the benefit of you writing the JavaScript. Yeah, it really seems like it's going to take the fun out of things to uh, specialize. And yeah, it's like it's almost like a what do you want to be when you grow up type of moment. And that's what upsets people. Right. Uh, two, two things on this front. First of all, um, I remember years ago, I remember explicitly putting on my website something about how, you know, those other web development companies, they specialize in one technology. Ha! Huh. We know that different, you know, technologies are good for different tasks. And so we're going to try different things, you know, the thing that's appropriate for you. And so I was running around crazy trying to learn all these different technologies all the time. So that if people called me up and said, Hey, can you do XYZ? I was like, Oh, yes, I could do XYZ. And in specializing, I was able to, I mean, granted it's the training, but I'm also training in specific technologies that I can then deepen my understanding and answer questions more easily and come off like more of an expert. So it's like good for everyone. I'm uh, curious the, if, if mm-hmm. training yeah, became less stressful for you when you decided to focus more, uh, a bigger proportion of your time and energy on it. I don't know. It was never that stressful for me. Okay. I think, though, you know what became less stressful, really? And uh, I, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but like, it was really just frustrating for me, always dealing with many of my development clients, where... There'd be issues of scope. There'd be issues of payment. There'd be issues of deadlines. There'd be issues of all sorts of little issues and sometimes big issues. And I discovered, you know, when I do training, all of that just goes out the window. And I like, why, why am I stressing myself out with something that, I mean, I'm just not good at estimating. I don't enjoy it. And here there's this other thing that's staring me in the face that I enjoy and that I'm good at. Why not just do that? So I don't think I was stressed about that at all. I think I was a little worried about would there really be enough work? But it became very clear to me when I was like scheduled six months in advance, mostly fully booked. Maybe that's not going to be such an issue. Nice. I'll just mention one, one other quick thing. Like my, uh, the, the way the high schools work in Israel, you almost have like to choose a major. And so I'm going through this with my, uh, my 14 year old daughter who's finishing, uh, ninth grade now. So she'll be starting 10th grade in high school. And she's like, well, you know, I don't know what I want to specialize in. <laughs> And I, I, I told her basically, well, first of all, you know, part of growing up is making trade-offs and making these choices. And second of all, it's not permanent, right? Like even if you major, as it were, in high school in one thing, you can always do something else. And I mean, Philip, you've mentioned that both in your book and, and here and other places. Like, let's say you position yourself to do X. No one's stopping you from, in another year, positioning yourself to do Y. Yeah. Uh, this is not a, you know, you're not stuck with it forever. It's a bit of an experiment and it'll probably change over time. Yeah. And uh, acquiring the new skills to support a new position, unless it's drastically different, like I'm going from web development to brain surgery, 
is not that hard, actually. It tends to be fun because if you're changing your position, uh, that could be for a variety of reasons. Uh, a lot of times it's because you feel like you've, you know, really kind of explored that old position. You've become an expert and, you know, maybe there's, you need a new challenge. That's, I think, perfectly fine. So it's actually fun <laughs> to evolve over time and your positioning can evolve with you. And it's very rare that someone is going to discount your new positioning because you actually had an old position. I mean, there's no safety in just being vague to give yourself the future ability to be, you know, vague in a different way. That doesn't really do anything. You just, you know, you're just vague and ill-defined. But anyway, I, my, my point is, yeah. yeah, we always call it soggy positioning. Right. Uh, so that I, does, I had, I'm oh, sorry. That, sometimes, that does not protect you against anything. I had a fear about when I launched coaching, it was a very different service than my mobile strategy stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had it on my original website and I was like, this is awkward. I have to move it off this site. I started a new site and that made me feel a lot better because I could go, you know, and depending on where I was, you know, if I was at a conference for web developers, I could, you know, my, my call to action, if you will, or my links would point to expensiveproblem.com. But if I was at a place where I was trying to, uh, you know, maybe I was at uh, a restaurant conference, an IT rest conference for restaurants. I could say, okay, you guys want to go to jonathanstark.com because that's where all the mobile stuff is. Right. But I still had my Twitter account and it was like, what do I share on the Twitter account? And I was like, I was just like nervous that uh, I'm going to start sharing these like business development type of links on Twitter and all of the strategy people are going to be like, what's this crap? And, you know, vice versa. Right. No one cares. I have way more followers now than I did before I did it. It doesn't matter. People, at, le yeah. at least on Twitter. Isn't that interesting? Mm. I mean, that's just kind of a general part of, I don't know, it's part of the human condition is feeling like other people care as much about us as we care about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, Ru and, Ruben was talking earlier about massaging his existing clients as if his existing clients are still going to his website, which I doubt. Right, yeah. They yeah, probably so, won't even see it. Yeah, well, the other thing is, is that I found that everyone else's problems always look better than mine from the outside. And yeah, my exactly. problems always look way worse from the inside. So when I'm right. looking at this and I'm going, if I change my positioning, oh my goodness, the world's going <laughs> to end, right? But when Jonathan did it, it's like, yeah, but that's Jonathan. It's like no big deal. <laughs> right. It's it's not like your clients or your prospects are going back to your website every week to see what's new. I mean, and I can, right. I mean, I, I have a casual collection of data from my own website and, uh, you know, uh, maybe 10% of people are repeat visitors and the rest who get on my list or, or otherwise give me some kind of paper trail of their history on my website are people who are just kind of drive-bys who saw an opt-in and said, great. Uh, in other words, people are not stalking you to see what you're up to most of the time. So... I, I want to kind of change topics a little bit here. We kind of promised a deep dive on this and we've talked a lot about how to get in, how to position yourself as a specialist and how to specialize. My question is, is let's say that I want to specialize in an e-commerce platform. You, you know, it could be Spree, it could be Shopify, you know, Kurt's done this. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I've done a little bit of this, but then I kind of backed off and did something else. But let's, let's say that that's the direction you want to go. How do you know if your positioning is working? 
once you have positioning that's working, how do you continue to refine it so that you get better and better leads? That's a great question. Positioning is a process that has 99 problems, but knowing if it's working is not one of those. <laughs> the thing that you have to keep in mind, though, is that there is there's a time delay for the kind of the echo to come back to you that it is working. So it, it's a really good question. What you have to have is some some amount of patience and maybe, as we've discussed a little earlier, some small ways to validate that it's a good positioning. So those two things will carry you through that that delay. And the delay is usually three to six months. I imagine it could be longer, but if you're not getting like a really resounding echo that this is working, you know, six months in, then something is is not right. Maybe you've chosen a positioning that does not resonate with anybody. Uh, maybe you're not getting your message in front of the right people or something else is off. What it feels like when it works and you know is, uh, you know, what Jonathan was hinting at what I was hinting at earlier, unsolicited uh, requests for your thoughts on some subject, invitations to appear on podcasts or other kind of speaking-based venues to uh, discuss whatever it is that you've positioned yourself as. I suppose if you position yourself and did no marketing at all, other than, you know, change your website and change how you talk to people who you normally talk to, these things may not happen. But if you just put even the smallest amount of marketing effort behind your positioning, you tend to get just a huge echo back when it works. Mm -hmm. I will say it's, again, it's, it's probably possible to undermine yourself in other ways, like to change your positioning and have a very scattered message on your website. So maybe you're going from a generalist to a a specialist type positioning, and but you don't think of your website and it's talking about a generalist web developer value proposition, then you're undermining your, your attempts to position yourself as a specialist. But other than that, you know if it's working. And uh, I know Eric and Jonathan and now Reuven have all started down this road or been down this road for some period of time. I, I'd just love to hear from you guys. How did how did you know it was working? Well, I was going to say one big test that I saw was I I knew someone a very little. Like we might have chatted like once or twice, like in IRC, so like an online chat or like you know Twitter to be a good uh, parallel. We've chatted once or twice there, and he was asked, "Hey, do you know someone that knows Redmine?" And he referred work to me. So it's mm-hmm. it's not just you getting work referred to you, but it's you're getting work referred to you through a loose connection. Like you're known as the person for X. And so everyone that even knows what X is knows to refer work to you. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. that's basically like the litmus test I found. Yeah. I've got a great example, I think, which is that past coaching student positioned himself. He's a total developer, but he was also very interested in email marketing and marketing automation and sort of business growth hacking, all that stuff. He's like a young guy, Silicon Valley. And he positioned himself as helping private college counselors get more clients. He had a a college counselor help him get into Brown Ivy League school and, you know, got him great financial aid, et cetera, et cetera. He's really happy with the person that he worked with. And so when we were working together, it was one of the things that came up on his potential target markets because it was something that he thought was an important thing that more and more people had access to, more and more people knew about because it was so beneficial to him. 
And so we, you said it before, I've said it before. It, there's no other way to describe it other than it's like magic. You start mm-hmm. talking about this thing. And now he let me know after the fact, you know, recently he let me know that he's been just, it, when people say, hey, David, nice to meet you. What do you do? He would say, oh, I'm a, I'm a private college counselor. I help private college counselors get more clients. He's been tracking it because he's a maniac for numbers. He's been tracking it. And one out of 10 people that he says that to knows someone who's a private college counselor and then introduces them. And that's just pure word of mouth, not online marketing, not mailing lists, none of that. Just telling a cab driver, oh, yeah, I help private college counselors get more business. Right. Oh, I I know someone. Here's my email address. Here's my card. Just total IRL, not online. It's insane. Because it, I'm starting to think that the magic is that word of mouth becomes incredibly frictionless. Like it's kind of what Eric just said. The word of mouth becomes really frictionless because you've now occupied this pigeonhole in the person you're speaking with in their mind. You're now that guy. And you could be just making it up, you know, they, but they are like, wow, this person must be an expert. Yeah. That's one of the things that, that is part of the classical definition of positioning is it's how you occupy a certain position literally within someone's mind and their, you know, their sort of mental uh, bookshelf of all the things that are out there in the world. You've got to find an empty place or a place that you can slide into. And that's why, you know, it's not just coming up with what you like doing, but really connecting with the spot within people's mind. And when you get specific, it gets a hundred times easier to do that. Right. Like if he just said he was a, I'm like, I'm awesome at Node.js. I'm a Node.js developer. I don't know who to recommend him to. Like who, like I couldn't even begin to think who in my list of thousands of contacts is using Node.js. But I would be able to think of someone who's a college counselor or people who might have used one. So it just makes the the sort of six degrees of separation thing, it makes it start to work for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I just, uh, I guess earlier this week, I was in touch with a colleague here in Israel. And we don't really compete. You know, he's a, he's a consultant, I'm a consultant, but he does mostly like low-level Linux types of things. And we were in touch because I heard about someone who might be able to use his skills because when they said, hey, do you know someone who's a you know, Linux kernel expert, I was like, yeah, that's what this guy does. And when I emailed him, he said, oh, what are you up to? I said, well, now I'm doing training, um, you know, in Python and Ruby and Git and Postgres. He was like, oh, great. If I know someone who needs that, I will definitely recommend you. And being able to have that, you know, punchy, specific sentence that puts you in that space in the person's mind, it makes all the difference. And I know, I like, I know from asking people, where did you hear about me, that People have been doing exactly what, what what you guys have been saying. There's a lot of word of mouth going on that I'm not even aware of because this is how people see me, and it's just gonna just gonna grow and help over time. In terms of getting publicity for your business, there's kind of a threshold that you have to get over before people will want you on their podcast or want you to speak at their conference. And very seldom is it something some sort of generalist who gets those kinds of invitations. And I think it's for the reason we've been been discussing. It's just a lot harder to mentally slot a generalist into a particular slot in your mind. So, you know, when you think of Ruby on Rails, uh, I mean, who do you think of? You you think of a handful of people who are very prominent within that sector. So those are the people who are going to be on the shortlist to get invited to speak about, you know, or to speak to audiences who care about Ruby on Rails. 
Yeah, like Eric, in my mind, is still positioned as the red mine guy. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know how. Demonstrating how easy it is to change positioning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's what you know we've been saying. It's kind of easy to tell when it works because I basically said I'm not going to be doing it except for a few select, you know, top choice clients, like what, three years ago now. And I'm still getting leads to this day of people wanting to work with me. And a lot of them I turned down because it's not the, like, you know, fits all of my ideal client profile, but you know, there's one or two here or there that I could be like, Oh yeah, like you actually fit, you know, reasonably well and I'll pick you up. But I mean, it's just, you know, I did a lot of the work and it, you know, it started paying off. I was positioned and I haven't moved into another position, you know, enough to actually push that old one away. Yeah, like our friend uh, Nick DeSabato, when I first met him, it was through a, an A-B testing service that he had launched. And I think he's kind of trying to downplay it now because he's really more of an interaction design person and he wants to be, I think he's actually trying to go a little bit more general to tell you the truth uh, because he's got plenty of work. He's, you know, he's not in a position where he needs more leads so he can soften his marketing a little. But still, when somebody needs A-B testing, he's the first person that comes to mind even though he doesn't want to do it anymore. Potential follow-up book to the positioning manual, the unpositioning manual. <laughs> like, the the depositioning de manual. <laughs> yes, the detox positioning. How to get out of that profitable niche and position that you've managed to work yourself into. Yeah, it does beg the question, like what, what are the motivations to like abandon a killer position that you have in people's minds? But I suppose that's a topic for another show. And it's also not a problem that probably most people are listening are experiencing. Well, and if you do have that problem, you're usually, in my experience, in a position of strength. You've got, you know, a good pipeline. You can afford, in other words, you can really afford to think about making a, a transition that might cost you some revenue in the short term or, or, you know, otherwise be kind of an inconvenience. When you're moving from being a generalist to a specialist, you're generally in an entirely different position where you're not as on top of things as you might be if you were more of a specialist. So, so. Let me ask you, Philip, like, let's assume someone says, yes, this positioning thing, you know, this specializing thing, totally the right thing to do. It's great. And they make a mistake, right? Like, I mean, this is part of the fear that you talk about in the book. And it's possible that even after going through the whole process, they go through the positioning and it doesn't work out. So should they just keep, you know, should they, should they change position completely? Should they just try to sort of evolve it to be something different? Basically, like, what do they do if it doesn't work? I mean, I've been through this. My first attempts at positioning were, I would not say half-hearted. They were sincere. They just didn't go far enough. And that's one of the things that can happen. It is so rare that I ever hear anybody I'm working with on their positioning tell me, you know, I'm going to become X. And I'm just shocked at how specific it is. That almost never happens because of all these fears and, you know, sort of a self-preservation instinct. You know, we just don't go far enough, usually on the first try. And that's that's what happened to me is I'll embarrass myself here. I, was, I had a tagline for a while that was smart marketing for geeks and creatives. And that was really my first attempt at positioning myself more specifically than, than a generalist position was to say, I'm just going to, you know, focus, I'm going to provide marketing services for this, you know, very broad category of business owners. And it, surprise, surprise, it didn't really resonate, even though it was kind of clever and catchy, because A, no business owner really identifies in that made up category. And B, it's, it just wasn't specific enough. So that's one reason why you might try this and it might not work. 
I'm not saying you have to, you know, in terms of American football, make a touchdown in one play. You don't have to go all the way to an extremely focused specialist position, but you do have to, you know, kind of get off the couch and go to the living room at least, or go to the bedroom from the living room. You know, you've, you've got to get over a certain threshold where you're really not a generalist anymore. If you are like me and you have a surprisingly high tolerance for risk, and let's say you just say one day, I'm, I'm going to try this and I'm going to, you know, rewrite my website this weekend. And, you know, I'm just going to try this new positioning without doing any testing to validate it. And it turns out to be a dud. Then, you know, you're going against best practices by doing that. And, you know, I guess you just dust yourself off and either retreat to a generalist position or try again, maybe with a little more research to uh, back up your your next effort. I am you, really honestly trying to think of anyone who's ever told me, and, and I, on Twitter, I occasionally ask people to contact me if they've tried focusing and it did not work. I just don't have that many stories to draw from. And I know that makes me seem biased, uh, or a fanboy or something, but I don't know what to say to that because it, it seems to never happen in my experience. I've never had anybody pick a positioning that was too specific ever. It's not even not even close. And I I was afraid recently, I was afraid that I had someone who did have a positioning that was too specific. And it turned out to be it turned out that there was a five hundred million dollar market globally for what he was this insanely focused positioning statement. Are you able to give an example so people can kind of really mentally sink their teeth into that, Jonathan? Uh, so well, I don't care. I can give one like. Yeah. OK, good. Yeah. I don't uh, know. if. <laughs> This is actually my previous employer. So when I was actually had a job, they were a small software company. We'll say 20 to 30 people. They created software for delivery and routing companies. So think of like UPS FedEx, the software that runs on their handhelds and tells them where they're going next, but not the large ones. We're talking about like mom and pop bottled water delivery, um, natural gas delivery, like small shops. And that company's been in business for I don't know how long. They had at least half a dozen mobile apps before mobile apps were a thing. Like this is before 3G and they were profitable. They were, you know, big and all that. But that was the position they took because they positioned themselves as they make software to solve routing problems for, you know, small, medium uh, companies. You know, you think it's a very tiny market. And then when you drill into it, just the bottled water focus, they focus on like a couple of different industries, just the bottled water. It has its own trade magazines. It has, I don't know how many national conventions. Like it's a huge market just there. And I didn't wow. realize until I dug into and started like, cause I was doing a lot of the web stuff. I dug into like, you know, what's this industry? Is it just like this, you know, 12 people that do it in the U.S.? No, it's like thousands and thousands of companies. But it's like, even that is that for a solo person, like you could be like completely full time working on stuff just in that one part of the industry. And like I said, they employed like 20 or 30 people. I think it was like five or six devs, you know. Wow. Decent company. But I just interviewed a woman who teaches people who make handmade soap how to run their handmade soap making business more effectively. So not that I'm trying to prove a case here by picking cherry picking edge cases, but that's a great example of a niche of a niche. And she's expanding. She now, you know, hired her husband. It's amazing how much you reduce competition when you when you focus on a niche. I have a past client that did absolutely nothing but review invoices 
for work done on forklifts. And they had a million dollar business with, at the time, I think it was about seven employees. And all they did was review invoices. And they would say, this invoice is too high or this invoice was fair. That's it. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And they've been in business for decades and they're making crazy money. I think the takeaway here is that you're very unlikely to fail in your attempts to position yourself by going too specific. You're much more likely, I I think, to fail by kind of holding back and not going far enough. And I don't want to encourage people to, you know, put their business on the line on a gamble. But if you do some research, uh, you can really, I think, support and kind of pre-validate a position before you try it out. Let's, can we drill into that? I know we're running, we're, it's getting kind of long in the show, but that, it would be great to have give people like a, an exercise that they could kind of do on their own. Maybe they've got an idea about a niche that they're familiar with, or maybe they grew up around because their parents did this as a as a business. Mm-hmm. How do you do that research? How do you find out if there's a conference for forklift company, you know, people who own forklifts, or uh, or like Eric's example? How do you find out that there's a market there? Okay. This is, I'm going to kind of detail a plan that's just one of maybe three or five or even 10 ways you could approach this. But I, I like the idea of let's, let's get down to brass tacks about how you might do this. So I would start by doing some Google searches and what you're going to be doing is building, you need to build two things and then you need to do some stuff that might be a little bit uncomfortable. So those two things you need to build are a list, a prospecting list, and this is going to be very, you know, familiar to salespeople. So you're going to have to, I'm sorry, get off your butt and and get out and not maybe not physically, but at least virtually talk to some people. The other thing you need to build is an offer that you can put in front of them. So let me break that down further. You would build the prospecting list in, I mean, there's a number of things you could bring together to build that. Some Google searches for companies in the market that you're going after. I would search, as Jonathan mentioned, for conferences or trade shows. I would also search for, and, and, you know, the Google syntax query to make this happen is probably more information than people need right now. But, you know, you can format your searches to reject the garbage results and give you what you're wanting. We'll do a, would, an example wouldn't hurt. Like, let's say, let's say I'm looking for people who run uh, farms, a farmer. I'm looking for farmers. Okay. What are you thinking is the problem you're going to solve for them? Just to give that one more I step w- of detail. I want to help them manage their uh, irrigation. Okay. With software. Okay. Uh, is there any kind of geographical focus? Or are we talking farmers anywhere Europe. in the world? Europe. Okay. Uh, is there any particular crop that they're growing? No. Okay. Okay. I'll give you one though. I'll give you one barley. Okay. Great. That makes it a lot easier. And that's why I asked those questions. Mm -hmm. Farmers in Europe. So, you know, I would do Google searches for uh, barley farms, barley growers, you know, several different keyword variations. And I would start building a list of farms, uh, websites and contact, any contact information you can get. I would look for conventions that cater to barley farmers. I would look for who sponsors those conventions and I would add the sponsors to my list. And I would also do some web searches for barley farmer forums or private email lists and try to 
you know, get into those email lists. I would look on LinkedIn for anybody with the job title of, you know, farm owner. I'm probably not using exactly the right terms because I'm not familiar with the barley farming uh, industry, but I would be look at these very easily available data sources to build a prospecting list. And I would just arbitrarily, I would try to get to 50 names that I really know what's going on in that industry or are in that industry. The also conference organizers can be a great source of information. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, because they tend to be super duper connected with the industry for which they are organizing a conference. Even if they're not a barley farmer, they probably know a lot of barley farmers. And we're getting beyond the level of casual internet research here, but the biggest source of gold you could probably find would be to volunteer for the next barley farmers conference because you'd all of a sudden have access to names that would be very valuable for research purposes and maybe business development purposes. So the second thing I would do is build an offer. The offer could be something informational. I mean, you could build something that's a a paid offer, but if the offer is even smaller than that and it's just, hey, I'm going to put together this guide about how barley farmers can address your common irrigation challenges using software, that could be relevant. It needs to be focused on solving a problem and it needs to be focused on that audience. The third step is simply to contact those people in the least needy, (laughs) the least I need you to give me something way and the most, you know, you want to position yourself as I've created this thing that has great value for you and I'd just like to give it to you for free. Can I give it to you? And that may involve them joining a list. It may involve uh, that you just emailing it to them. And you've created an opening from which you can start to test your positioning. So that's one way to do it. That's gold. That is like a step-by-step guide for anybody who can just, all you need to do, dear listener, is to replace European barley farmer who has problems with irrigation with whatever your potential target market and expensive problem are. And you can just go to town. And there's one thing that I want, I just wanted to like, while you were saying it, I want to add... The part about the sort of cold outreach to those people can be very uncomfortable, as you mentioned. For sure. If you're viewing it as you're trying to sell them or you're trying to trick them or you're spamming them. But if you flip that around and you think you've created this thing that can make their lives better and you're going to give it to them for free, like this is going to sound totally grandiose. I think it helps allay that spam fear by saying you've created this free resource that will make their lives and at a larger scale, the world in general, a better place. And you owe it to them to let them know that it exists so they can take advantage of it. If you can change that, you it's like an internal change that needs to happen. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm serving this market. I'm not trying to like siphon money off of this market. Right. Like I'm trying to serve this market. I owe it to them to let them know about this ebook that I wrote that they can download for free. And it's yeah. not like it, it just changes the whole, um, I think it changes the whole emotional equation. It's huge. It's, it's really, it's the way that introverts like me, uh, shy and retiring types like me. I mean, I sound, maybe I sound good on a podcast, but I'm really pretty shy in real life. It's a way that people like us can, I mean, it's just very powerful. As you mentioned, it changes the, the, the dynamic so you don't have to feel bad about reaching out to people and, you know, quote unquote, interrupting their day. The other, I, the other thing I would add is if you get intimidated thinking about it, you're probably thinking about building something too big. 
like you're probably thinking you need to write an ebook. And what you need to do is write a two page, decently formatted PDF that solves an even smaller problem. Don't put barriers in your own way is, it's what I'm trying to say. If this idea is appealing to you or if you see the benefits of it, cut scope until you can ship it. Totally. Such great advice. Well, I mean, and even to take that one more step, instead of doing a two page thing, make your giveaway like you'll get on the phone and give them a free 30 minute consultation, you know, custom advice based on what they tell you. That costs you nothing to make up front, takes you half an hour and you get half an hour to talk to a potential customer. Yep. Right. You're going to get as much information out of that as they are. And that's the whole goal is to give first before you ask for anything. So, yeah, that's that's one thing you can you can just begin implementing, I think, tomorrow if you're trying to pave the way for a safer transition to a new positioning. Very cool. Is there anything else that we should go over, though, with positioning that we haven't even discussed yet? I think we've covered a lot of a lot of the, you know, things about it that are important and commonplace. I, I don't see any major, at least high level issues we haven't touched on. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks then. Jonathan, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I would love to. Um, so Kurt Elster's name's come up a couple times on the episode. And that reminded me that he recently published a book of email templates for handling sort of sticky situations. So it's like a email templates for freelancers type of book. Uh, it's an ebook that you can get, I believe it's on Gumroad. And it has things like ready to use emails for things like qualifying leads, scheduling a call, uh, onboarding, surveying clients, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if I assume that most people are kind of like me where you spend a painfully large portion of your day basically emailing people for one thing or another. And this book will give you ready to use templates that handle a lot of the sort of trickier types of emails, things that have like a, a call to action or a prospecting type of function. So I definitely recommend that. On the same topic, I recently posted a, uh, a on uh, the Expensive Problem blog about how to send a, a cold call to someone to get them talking about what problems they need solved are. So, so basically, it's like you're in a situation where maybe you're just starting out or you're still a full-time employee somewhere, a W-2 employee, and you're thinking about hanging out your own shingle and you want to do this positioning stuff. You get it. You understand what Philip's talking about here and you really you don't want to be a generalist right out of the gate, but you don't have a ton of connections in a lot of different markets and maybe you're not sure what you want to do. So the best thing you can possibly do is talk to prospective customers, but how do you do that? So I posted a template that you can use to send to, you know, say 50 names on a list. It's not spam. Every single one of them would be customized, single person email, but it is a template where you can fill out sort of the information and send them this email to uh, maximize your chances of getting on the phone with them for 10, 15 minutes. And you can say, hey, you know, what's keeping you up at night? What are the three things on your to-do list that have been there for a year, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, those are my two picks. All right, Reuven, what are your picks? Okay, so I got two picks this week. The first is the Video Fruit blog by Brian Harris. has all sorts of great stuff on there about um, products and launching and everything. And, and recently he had this really, really long and really detailed and really excellent blog post entitled How I Made $10,000 in 24 Hours with My First Product, which of course sounds great, right? But he goes over exactly what he did and how he went through it little by little 
And, you know, his, his three basic things are, well, first of all, create a product your readers are desperate to buy and then validate it and then launch. And of course, the launching is the part that we're all kind of good at. It's the getting people ready and making sure that people really want this product. That's harder to do. So anyway, I, I'm still reading through it. I'm still thinking about how I want to use a lot of this information. He has a ton of really good advice in there, and I definitely recommend it to people interested in launching things. Um, and speaking of launching things and speaking of niche products, so this will probably uh, be interesting to maybe, maybe on a good day, 1% of the people listening to this podcast, but I'll tell you about it anyway. So as many podcast listeners know, I've gone to China many times. Uh, I'm also Jewish and uh, keep kosher, keep the Sabbath. And so I've gotten a growing number of questions from people in a similar religious vein saying, hey, you've gone to China. What can I do? And in the last month, I got a whole bunch of questions about it. So I finally wrote email to one of them. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And I said, hey, this is actually an ebook. And so sure enough, I have launched the ebook called The Jewish Guide to Visiting China. Uh, it's about 45 pages or so. It has all sorts of links and uh, phone numbers and suggestions and so forth. And so you, you too can write an ebook in a few days and start to sell it. And then ignore all the advice I just told you the Video Fruit blog, blog had that I should follow. But uh, anyway, uh, I'll put the links to that on the show notes, and I'd be happy to get feedback from people on that. Anyway, that's it for this week. All right, Eric, what are your picks? All right. I basically, like Jonathan said, I'm always in email, always doing stuff. And I absolutely hate the email app on Apple phones. And for I don't know how long I've been trying to like figure out, like get some kind of email to work or a good workflow for it. Um, the one I've been using is basically bugging. Like you would just like your emails would disappear. They're not deleted, but they just don't show up anymore. Um, and so recently I, I mean, I run Linux. I've been running Linux for years. I actually even tried Microsoft's Outlook for the phone. Like that's how desperate I was getting, but I actually found an app called Spark, which other than like two things, it's like perfect for my email. Um, it's has some kind of categorizing, um, you know, so like here's newsletters, here's important stuff, here's stuff you pinned, a lot of customization. So you can kind of figure out a good workflow. Um, and it's very, very fast at triaging. Like if you just have to go through a hundred emails really quick, um, I think it's free. Um, I got it when it was free. Uh, it's really nice. The only downsides that I found is one is there's no iPad version. I think they're considering it, but it's just, it, it literally just launched. And two, uh, at least for me, I like to turn images off on email just to save bandwidth and to just not deal with all the tracking stuff all the time. Um, and that's not an option at this point. But other than that, like I've had no problems, no crashing. Uh, it works with, I use IMAP on Rackspace, but um, it's supposed to support Gmail and a whole bunch of other stuff too. So that's my pick. Nice. I just use the Gmail app because I use Google Apps. So, and, and I think it's awesome. So I'll go ahead and pick that. I'm also going to pick smile.amazon.com. You can pick a charity and then whenever you buy stuff on there, they send money to charity. So I picked the Wounded Warrior Project. They have a whole bunch of other ones on there. So whatever charity you think, you know, kind of lines up with what you're doing. I figure if I'm buying stuff on Amazon anyway, I may as well get them to send some money to somebody that, you know, doing good things. One other thing, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it came mostly out of, so I'm going to a podcasting conference and they announced their keynotes and their, one of their keynotes is by a fairly well-known radio personality who mostly talks about politics in the United States. And so, of course, there was all kinds of blowback because people are fairly partisan and, you know, if they're not on my side, then I hate them. And I realized that there's a lot that you can learn from people that you don't necessarily agree with. And so I just want to encourage people to go out there and talk to people that you don't agree with. Uh, see what you can learn from them. See how they challenge the way you think. 
all of this is really helpful and really healthy. And I've, I've done this a bunch with people that, that I've gotten to know over the last few months. And it's either helped me confirm the way I think or made me think about whether or not I have good reasons and good thought processes behind what I'm thinking and the way that I uh, approach the world. So that's kind of a rambly pick, but that's my pick. Philip, what are your picks? Okay, I'm going to pick three things. The concept of positioning has been around since at least the late 60s as, you know, like a, a thing that had a name that was kind of revolutionary at that time. So I'm late to the party in talking about positioning, but that's okay because it's a super timeless concept. So my first pick is a book called Positioning, The Battle for Your Mind. It is by Al Reese and Jack Trout. I think it was published in the early 70s. So it's going to be, it's going to feel dated. And some of the concepts are not super applicable to professional services because a lot of the examples are about big mega companies like General Electric and Palm Olive and <laughs> these big, big brands where really only one brand can tr- occupy a particular position. And in the world that we all live in, that's not really true. Uh, multiple freelancers could easily occupy the same position and maybe even never even hear of each other throughout the course of their career. So if you keep that in mind, the advice in this book is incredible. Pick number two is the Rolls MS-111 microphone switch, which is a switch you can use to mute your microphone if it uses a XLR cable. So that's not really applicable to USB microphones. And for that, I think there are software mic mute switches. But if you do any level of podcasting and don't like hearing yourself cough into the microphone, (laughs) this switch is great. My third pick is uh, a thing that I made, I made a, a podcast that I launched recently. It's called the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. And the Consulting Pipeline Podcast talks about positioning. So far, that's about all I talk about, but I'm going to transition into a focus on content marketing after I get another 10 or so episodes added. And even right now, there's about, uh, shoot, I think 10 or 11 episodes that you can download and binge listen to if you're into that. So that's uh, the Consulting Pipeline Podcast, and the website, as you might guess, is consultingpipelinepodcast.com. So those are my picks. Awesome. Are there any other ways that people can uh, get a hold of you or follow what you're doing? They can come for a visit uh, in Sebastopol, California, but uh, if that's a little more than they're up for, (laughs) they can check me out online, philipmorganconsulting.com. There's just one L in Philip. The thing that I really... I love talking about positioning. It's probably obvious. And so I've created a positioning crash course. It's a free six-part course that you can uh, sign up for. And it's really got a lot of the same stuff that's in my book. It just doesn't go into as much depth. But I think it's a really good way for people to find out if positioning is going to be helpful to them, if it's right for them, if now's the right time. And there's a, a bit.ly link for that, bit.ly slash positioning crash course, all one word. All right. Well, thank you for coming, and thanks for all of the insight. It's My pleasure. It's going to take me months to implement all the stuff that you talked about in an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll really appreciate it, and we'll catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. 
Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 